The information contained in this podcast is for general information purposes and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making any investment decision. This is In The Know, a monthly investment podcast brought to you by Magellan Asset Management, experts in global investing. We bring you timely, unique and thought-provoking insights to help you make sense of today's investment landscape. Look, to me, it doesn't matter what industry you're in. I think we have a common objective and responsibility here around more sustainable business operations, whether that's on CO2 emissions or packaging or other matters. As you know, we're quite committed to all of these goals and very specific plans and commitments out there on each of them. And I can only encourage any fellow business leaders in other industries as well to kind of do the same. And that's Nestle CEO, Mark Schneider who in this wide-ranging discussion shares his perspectives and priorities on a company that has brought globally recognised food and beverage products into people's homes for more than 150 years. But times are changing, and with more than 75 transactions already completed in just four short years, Mark is creating a step change for the business into the future. Welcome to Episode 11 of In The Know. Mark's priorities include a robust portfolio rebalance program, delivery of new and healthier food and beverage offerings, and a genuine focus on the environmental responsibilities of a multinational corporation producing and transporting billions of dollars worth of product around the world. All the while, Mark has led this food and beverage empire through a global pandemic, with safety issues for staff around the world and changes in consumer behaviour as customers refocus on their own health concerns while withdrawing to the safety of home. In this episode, Mark joins Hamish Douglas, Magellan's Chairman and Chief Investment Officer, to discuss new strategic directions for the company as it takes on a leading role in global health and wellness. First, a warm introduction from Hamish. Well, welcome back, everyone. My name is Hamish Douglas. I am Chief Investment Officer at Magellan Asset Management. Today, I think you're in for another real treat. Joining me today is Mark Schneider. Mark is the Chief Executive of the world's largest food company. Many of you know this company. It's Nestle, based in Switzerland. So first of all, Mark, welcome, and thank you for agreeing to join our listeners today. Thanks, Hamish, and uh, thanks for having me. An absolute pleasure. You are now leading the world's largest food company and you've been the chief executive for a little over three years since January 2017. People may not be aware, certainly our listeners, but you're the first external chief executive in nearly 100 years at Nestle. So it's very unusual for someone from the outside to come in to lead this incredible company. So maybe you could just give us, Mark, just a a little bit of background on yourself and how you became the chief executive of probably Switzerland's most famous company. Yeah, thanks, Hamish. And look, uh, let me take you back a long, long time to the 1980s. At that time, I was an undergrad student here in Switzerland. At that university, there were quite frequently events where Nestle speakers participated. And one thing that caught my attention early on and gave me a lot of respect for the company was how in the 80s, Nestle used uh, cross-border M&A at a time when this was not usual to aggressively build its business and footprint globally. 
So transactions like Carnation in the U.S. or Roundtree Macintosh in the U.K. were pretty daring feats at that time. And uh, I was impressed by how the company pulled that off. So that was kind of the initial contact and kind of respect building phase, if you will. Then I kind of lost touch for a number of years and reconnected in the early 2000s because I was running a healthcare company, Fresenius, at the time. Fresenius is one of the other global providers of medical nutrition, just like Nestle. And through that industry interaction overlap, I got to know the leadership of Nestle really well at that time and was impressed by the culture, the attitude to business, uh, the values that were very compatible to how I was running my company at the time. And so through that, when the opportunity arose to join the firm in uh, 2016, I certainly did not hesitate. To me, this was a company I always had a lot of respect for and, frankly, have never looked back since. It's been an amazing run. Well, thank you for that background. And you mentioned that Nestle had been a very active acquirer businesses through the 1980s. And you mentioned the Roundtree acquisition that I think may have been one of the largest transactions done in the UK in the 1980s. It was a very famous transaction if people followed mergers and acquisitions at those times. But since you've taken over as CEO, you've completed or announced over 75 transactions and it's equal to around 18% of sales, I think you've estimated. This is certainly in recent times a step change of how the company's managed its portfolio. Historically, uh, certainly in the recent past, you may not have been a major seller of businesses. You've been constant acquirers, but you've been moving in both directions here and changing the shape of the portfolio. So what criteria are you using as chief executive to identify businesses for sale and acquisition? Is this just a financial algorithm to increase the margin and increase the growth rate on the basis in the short term, the market would love to see that? Or is there something really deep going on here about what you want the sort of strategically the portfolio to look like? Yeah, Hamish, interesting set of questions and uh, happy to comment. So as you saw from the previous examples, clearly buying and selling is something that the company has engaged in over time. If you go back way earlier than the 1980s, and I've turned into a little bit of a history buff on uh, Nestle and its 155-year history, you see lots of portfolio moves, I think, in line with changing tastes and trends over that long period of time. Buying and selling is something that the company has always actively engaged in. The pace has quickened starting from 2016-17, and that is in line with some of the industry changes that we have seen. And um, you're absolutely right to ask about the strategic direction because financial criteria alone would not be enough. Financial criteria are important so that you're making prudent financial decisions. That is what shareholders expect from us as uh, stewards of their capital. But if you only apply that, it would be essentially 1960s, 1970s conglomerate building. What we need to do is take prudent financial decisions. But on the other hand, we also need to develop a strategic direction. And I think we outlined that early on. I did this within the first few weeks of my becoming a CEO by highlighting our five high-growth businesses that are prioritized for investments. And I think we've been following that fairly consistently ever since. Mark, many people know Nestle is one of the world's largest food companies. Of course, they know the brands Nescafe and Nespresso and Maggi and KitKat, but our listeners may not be aware that you're one of the world's largest pet food companies, and it's an absolute fabulous 
business with a very good industry structure. And the business has been on fire lately, partly driven by COVID, but it's actually been a very good business for a long period of time. Maybe you could provide our listeners a bit of a background of how Nestle got in the pet food business, sort of how you see that business. And maybe we could outline what's been going on during COVID that's been leading to such strong growth rates. Absolutely, and happy to comment. And here again, it may be worthwhile to go back a little bit in history and see how we got into it. So we initially got started with the pet food business through the Carnation acquisition. So Carnation had a small pet food business. We were not engaged in pet food before. So throughout the 90s, it was probably not the center of our attention. But then we saw the amazing industry fundamentals that I'll comment on in a minute. Then we gave it more and more focus. And the capstone was certainly our acquisition of Purina in the early 2000s that made us one of the industry leaders. It's been a success story from then on. So this was not just a story about buying a business here and then being successful with it. I think we're very patiently with the Purina team around the world, build our market positions and gained market share very consistently over the years. This is a business that has amazing growth drivers and amazing fundamentals in the most advanced markets. It's simply about seeing pets more and more as family members that want to be treated just like human family members that get pampered. And so higher quality, better premiumized pet food is something that's clearly running quite well. In emerging markets and developing countries, it's mostly about what we call calorific conversion. So rather than feeding pets with household waste, it's really about dedicated pet food, which is healthy for the pet and is also saving the owner's uh, time. And uh, these two trends really are important growth drivers uh, that have been consistently at work now for several decades and that probably will see significant runaway going forward. The whole thing got a significant shot in the arm through COVID because we saw that in major markets, pet adoption was way up and people clearly were looking for companions at home during the times of lockdown, spending more time at home and uh, thinking about how to make that enjoyable and pleasant. So that has really given the entire industry a boost, and it certainly benefited the strongest players in the industry, and we're one of them. And Mark, do you see there's any risk that people will want to give up their pets when we fully reopen? And are we going to go back to a life where people who have had a pet don't want a pet? Or is it too early to say in terms of any of that behaviour? So clearly, I mean, some of the strong growth rates we've seen will probably moderate over time. I think that's only natural, but it's unlikely to assume that everyone that adopted a pet will simply drop it right after COVID because they're going back to their previous lifestyle. I think it's safe to assume that many people like the pets that they adopted and hence they want to stay with them. Is there going to be a certain percentage and fraction of people that may find out that post-COVID this is not fitting in their lifestyle? Yes. You have to work with your own assumptions, but I would assume that's certainly the minority of uh, pet owners. And then over time, as that pet goes through its lifetime, it's also safe to assume that some people, even after a pet has deceased, will probably be interested in getting a new one because they rather warmed to the idea of pet ownership. So a long way of uh, saying that we expect a rather long tail of this, which is good news for the industry. And frankly, as a pet owner myself, I have to say it's also good news for the pet owners because owning a pet is a very enjoyable thing. Absolutely. We own many of them in our household and they're very valued members of the family as well. Maybe moving on a little 
beyond pet food with COVID, there's there's been some real changes in consumer behaviour. Some will be temporary, but some has accelerated trends. You know, many more people have cooked at home and they weren't cooking at home. You know, do you see a change in behaviour of the consumption of your goods now? People have actually tried cooking a meal at home where they wouldn't have been, or maybe there's been changes around the digital side of your business. So what do you see in COVID in terms of how behaviour may have changed and maybe some things that are just too early to call out? Yeah, look, in my opinion, there's two major ones which are here to stay. One is the interest in all things that are health-related and specifically in nutrition that is supposed to be immune-boosting. I think that is here to stay even beyond COVID. It may even apply in the future to winter season and flu season and so forth. So that one, I think everyone got a crash course in your immune system and what it takes to boost that and how to support that through adequate nutrition. And that, of course, plays right into some of the strengths we have. Think about the vitamins, minerals and supplements business, but also think about our continuous efforts to make our portfolio more nutritious and healthy. The second part that's here to stay is all things digital that are customer facing and consumer facing. So food and beverage traditionally was one of the slow adopters when it comes to e-commerce and digital business opportunities. We tended to quip that people like to pick the bananas themselves when they go shopping rather than just clicking on something and then seeing what gets delivered. I think that changed significantly with the onset of COVID. And now what you're seeing is people kind of liked the experience and uh, many of them will stay with it simply for sheer convenience and that's a good thing so we doubled all efforts on the business on the digital business front and direct to consumer front and we believe that it'll continue to see a very good growth rates going forward the part where the verdict is kind of out is on this cooking at home where clearly that saw a boost during COVID, cooking baking at home And the question is, was that a way to kill time during the lockdowns or is it now a habit that people rediscovered and that's going to be here to stay? I think even if people post-COVID spent more time at home, which I think is a safe assumption with more remote working arrangements and so forth, you may not see them spend as much time cooking at home. I think they're rather more interested in taking their meals at home. So that's why I think you're seeing a renewed interest in frozen meals. You're seeing a renewed interest in meal delivery services and the like. It's not only about cooking from scratch at home. Well, thank you for that, Mark. And I would like to maybe move on to your coffee business, obviously a business that most people will know and most people have personal experiences with this, with brands like Nescafe and Nespresso. And you've recently partnered with a company which we have another very large investment in, Starbucks. And we know Kevin Johnson very well. Kevin is a huge fan of the alliance he struck with Nestle. And I think they looked at two potential partners and described Nestle as the perfect partner at the end of the day, that you're offering packaged and capsule coffee to the consumer at home and also to professional channels with the Starbucks brand. What was the sort of genesis of that partnership and how have you assessed the progress to date? Is it on track, ahead of track? How are you seeing and measuring that partnership? Yeah, look, let me echo what uh, Kevin told you. I'm also a huge fan of this Global Coffee Alliance. I think there's a lot of affinity and compatibility between both companies when it comes to how we think about coffee, 
our values and how we approach business and also how we approach, for example, sustainability matters. Uh, so this was not just a marriage of convenience, but rather a very good fit in the way we approach business. There has been a longstanding relationship between Starbucks and Howard Schultz and some of the senior leaders here on Nestle's side way before we struck this transaction. Kevin and I got introduced to each other in early 2018. We hit it off and happy to say that what used to be a business relationship over time has also turned into a very good friendship. And in a very short order of time, early 2018, we negotiated this transaction. And I think we haven't looked back since. So we announced it in May 2018. It closed in August. And then just six months later, in early 2019, we unveiled a range of 24 initial SKUs that are Starbucks branded. And those have seen major success. We've been introducing one market after another around the world. And then we've been following up essentially every six to 12 months with exciting new product innovations under the Starbucks name. So very strong relationship. I think it's built on the insight that they have this unique strength in the coffee shop business and serving coffee out of home. And uh, we simply have an amazing strength and global presence in all things related to retail and also some of the out of home professional service opportunities. So I think it's just exactly complementary, and that's why this relationship has been so successful. And are there any internal sort of conflicts between your Nespresso capsule business and the Starbucks capsule business, or really are they separate channels where you sell Nespresso in your own boutiques and and it's really the supermarket channel where the capsules for Starbucks? Do, do you get any tensions internally or do people view it as complementary? So the Starbucks by Nespresso line has been one of the most successful parts and it's designed exactly to be around this fault line of retail versus direct-to-consumer. So Nespresso is the quintessential direct-to-consumer business and we won't stop being that. I mean, that's essentially one of the defining features of uh, Nespresso and Starbucks is sold by our retail and hence I think there's very clear channel distinction here and also very clear brand identity between these two. And internally, given that the Nespresso system is by now an open system, there's lots of other companies out there offering capsules, clearly strengthening Starbucks and building that is not something that per se was seen as a problem by Nespresso. It helps to fill the factory. So, I mean, when you're buying a Starbucks by Nespresso product, it's Starbucks coffee but it is filled in espresso capsule in one of the espresso factories. So that helps with factory utilization, overhead leverage and so forth. So it benefits both sides and hence inside the company, this was fairly easy to manage. And Mark, in the professional channels, if you're in the food service channel and you're going to a hotel, is there any tension between whether you take a Starbucks coffee or an, or a Nescafe solution to a professional customer? So out of home, like in a hotel setting or office setting, we offer a whole range of brands. And uh, I think all of these are quite well defined by price point. Hence, there is not that much brand confusion here. And we're also seeing, depending on what geography you're looking at, we're seeing, of course, very strong preferences. So in the Anglo-Saxon world, especially in North America, I mean, Starbucks has this amazing iconic strength. When you go to more Latin environment, either Southern Europe or Latin America, 
then clearly Nescafe has a lot of brand heritage and is well established there. So I think by now, I mean, it's good to be able to offer a range of different brands and uh, it has not been a problem either side, either Starbucks or Nescafe or anyone else. And you mentioned that you're very aligned with Starbucks on sustainability. Obviously, sustainability in the coffee supply chain is critical. It's a very real issue, very important to your brand identity as well. So how do you contribute to the sustainability right down to the farm level within the coffee business? Yeah. So this is a long-standing effort that we've been working on for many years. And doing some market visits in coffee-growing countries, honestly, one of the most touching moments was when coffee farmers who've been doing business with us, sometimes third or fourth generation, keep telling me how we essentially keep the family farm going with the regular business we give them and also the technical assistance. So I think this has been a true Nestle hallmark and we've been at it for a long period of time. It starts with some of the research that we're doing at a dedicated lab into coffee varieties and plants and going right down to the gene makeup of various types of coffee. And then there's on-the-ground technical assistance to farmers to be sure that they use the most sustainable and economic ways of farming for coffee, incorporating the latest changes in climate and weather patterns and so forth. And that technical assistance is important. And it's about essentially giving people the help so that the farm can thrive and prosper and survive over time. And uh, then the other thing, as I mentioned, is the long-term business relationship in a coffee business as a commodity has seen its ups and downs. And I think just being a steady, reliable business partner in that environment is so important for fragile agricultural communities around the world. And while we're on the topic of sustainability, I'd like to maybe rotate to your water business. And you've been making some very interesting changes recently. You've made a major sale in the US of your domestic spring water and purified and water delivery business, which was a very large business in the United States. You've retained ownership of your global premium water businesses, and many people will know Perrier and San Pellegrino, which are two of the world's great brands. And you just bought a functional water business, essentially a water, when you were selling your US sort of domestic business. Maybe you could just talk about why you decided to divest the domestic water business and at the same time buy another water business. And then I may want to get into the sort of sustainability question, but maybe what were you achieving with the reshaping of that portfolio? Yeah. Let me start with a view on the water category, which we had defined early on as a potential high growth category and one where we continue to see very interesting growth opportunities. So the category compared to some of the others that Nestle is engaged in is always among the higher growth ones. And we see those positive fundamentals apply going forward as well. So this whole theme of healthy hydration is one that still resonates very much around the world. Different motivations, in some cases, some places and geographies, it's simply access to clean water, high quality. In other cases, it's about stepping away from carbonated soft drinks to a healthy alternative or simply, you know, increasing the amount of hydration, especially in a hot climate, for example. So there's lots of good reasons why the water consumption should increase over time. Now, having said that, we were in some segments that were extremely competitive. So the lower price range on plain still water is one that is hard for a company like us to perform in well over time. 
There's lots of price pressure, little room for differentiation, lots of competition from low-priced and private label brands. And we also felt that it was increasingly difficult in this lower price range to bring together our approach to the sustainability in waters that we believe is needed when it comes to water stewardship and the packaging and uh, carbon emissions and so forth, and then the cost competitiveness in that sector. When you're competing with people that essentially do not have those same standards, then it's really hard to make ends meet in the lower price range. It's way better, way easier in premium water brands. You mentioned Perriens and Pellegrino. And we also see better differentiation and premiumization opportunities in functional water. So all of that got outlined before we started with the deal making. So this goes back to your earlier question. It's not just opportunistic deal making. We basically tell people, here's the strategy. They liked it. And then we started to implement. And that meant reviewing the North American business where we had some of those low end and lower priced products. And uh, we concluded that transaction earlier this year. And then with Essentia, I think we added a quintessential premium functional water brand that clearly has strong appeal in North America and beyond. And uh, we'll continue to pursue that strategy, international premium brands and differentiated functional offerings. And Mark, you were mentioning the sustainability question. Nestle is at the forefront of the sustainability debate here. So how do you, some people would say the conflict, you've got a health and wellness brand that's growing well, but shipping water around the world doesn't make sense from a carbon point of view and shipping water in plastic bottles doesn't make sense from a plastic sustainability point of view. So how do you sort of weigh that up and how does Nestle contribute to making the world a more sustainable place? Yeah. So clearly in that premium space, you have so much more room to pursue ambitious sustainability goals, whether that's on carbon neutrality or packaging. And yet at the same time, combine that with a successful financial profile. And so that's what makes it so interesting to us, in addition to that functional water segment. When you buy a bottle of Perrier or San Pellegrino somewhere overseas, where there's obviously long lines of transportation involved, we're not proposing this as your daily hydration solution. We're proposing it as a treat, as something that gives you a unique taste profile that's specific to these brands and the mineral profile, not only to these brands, but also to these sources. And that's essentially what you're buying. And no surprise, you find this in particular in a fine dining segment, for example, or when you entertain guests at home. And it would be no different from, for example, consuming a bottle of wine that may also be transported long distance and also in a glass container. We will make these international premium brands carbon neutral within the next year. And the idea here is not only to go through offsets, but rather to first do a whole lot of insetting work, like look at the supply chain itself and making that lower carbon. And then for the rest, because there's invariably short to midterm, there's going to be a deficit. You will address that through offsets. It's important when we talk about making something carbon neutral, we don't go the route of all offsetting because frankly, as much as offsetting is better than doing nothing, you know, in itself, we believe it's not enough. So you have to start in your own backyard. And that means your own production and supply chain. And then if you want to move a little faster and achieve carbon neutrality a little faster for a brand, then you can top it off with offsetting, but it shouldn't be the other way around. 
And would you say that Nestle, given that these are premium and treat brands and people want to consume them, that you're the responsible owner, you will invest in sustainability as part of that, as wine owners should invest in sustainability as well. People aren't going to stop drinking wine, but the industry needs to invest in sustainability here. Yeah, and look, to me, it doesn't matter what industry you're in. I think we have a common objective and responsibility here around more sustainable business operations, whether that's on CO2 emissions or packaging or other matters. As you know, we're quite committed to all of these goals and very specific plans and commitments out there on each of them. And I can only encourage any fellow business leaders in other industries as well to kind of do the same. And Mark, I'm going to ask another tough question just because it appeared recently, and I know ESG and sustainability is at the front of many people's minds in the in the world. The Financial Times ran a story that I think many people around the world read that claimed it had seen an internal document at Nestle that said that 60% of the products the company sells are unhealthy. And of course, they pulled out chocolate brands and they pulled out things like your strawberry-flavoured Nesquik as examples of sort of sugar-based products. But how do you think about health and wellness and custodians of businesses like either Nesquik or confectionery or chocolate in your portfolio? Yeah. I mean, thanks for bringing it up because I think it's a good opportunity to address this. As you said, this has gotten a lot of attention around the world. And so it's important to provide a bit of context This company for more than 20 years now has been very steadfastly pursuing a nutrition, health and wellness strategy. And that meant investing a lot in new and healthier solutions, either through internal developments or through acquisitions over time. And also very steadily improving the nutritional profile on products that may not, as their key focus, be geared towards nutrition only, but rather be more focused on enjoyment and indulgence. So think about chocolate or ice cream, you know, these are not products that you typically consume to provide all your nutrients, you consume them because you want to have the enjoyment. And we always made it clear that we will continue to engage in those lines of business, but with the aspiration level that in each of those, we would be among the healthier solutions. So still give you the enjoyment, which seems to be a human longing around the globe, but to do that with a nutritional footprint and set of metrics that is among the best in class. And that, in addition to portion control and also responsible rules on marketing to children, in my opinion, is one of the more responsible ways of dealing with that. When it comes to the FT article, clearly that headline about the 60% was taken a bit out of context because The whole internal presentation and the goal of our internal review process we have underway is simply to continue to upgrade and modernize our nutritional standards and mechanisms that we have in place to be sure that we have the most advanced portfolio. This is something we have done in the past and will continue to do it. And as the article itself further down explained, the 60% number is only referring to half of our portfolio because the other half usually gets governed by other guidelines. So think about infant nutrition, where you have fairly extensive national regulations and so forth. So actually, the 60% is in true when you apply to the full portfolio, less than 30%. And so that's why the headline, in my opinion, was a bit misleading. That less than 30%, not that we would rest there, 
but that already compares quite favorably to many of our peers in the food industry. And what we are saying is we don't stop there. We'll continue to improve, not so much by simply saying, okay, let's sell everything that is not per se geared to nutrition, but rather preferentially developing more nutritious solutions in the enjoyment-related categories, making sure that we have offerings that are among the best in class when it comes to nutrition profile. And obviously, in your confectionery business, you're moving up to more indulgent type categories, premiumization, which probably means smaller consumption sizes, dark chocolate. But are there, and I don't want you to name things in the portfolio, but are there things that maybe in the future the company would say, you'll either discontinue or you don't want to be in because really there's not a pathway for a nutritional future and they may not fit? Look, we're certainly putting priority on seeing how we can improve the situation with a proper and responsible framework around making sure you still have the enjoyment with the least damage, if you will. Second, portion control and prudent guidance around portion. Third, complete transparency on what's in there so that people can make responsible choices about what it means to consume one of these products. And then fourth, also, as I mentioned, the guidelines to marketing to children so that, you know, you're acting very responsibly there for people that simply by nature of their age and development are not yet in a position to make these responsible choices. So I think, you know, those four steps and uh, thought patterns certainly take preference. And then over time, again, it's important here not so much to look at what we would sort of de-emphasize, but rather what we do emphasize, and that is healthier products and making more of those. But as we look at the portfolio overall, it's also important to look at how each and every one of us as consumers make their choices. And not everything we eat during a day is related to sheer health and survival alone. Some of that is also enjoyment related. And so with those responsible gatings and patterns around it, I believe it is okay to engage in that and to continue to do that. And in terms of the digital side of the business, you know, Nestle is becoming more digital. I think last year, nearly 13% of your sales were generated online and more than 60% of digital advertising has sort of this personalization at scale. So how are you viewing sort of digitalization in terms of how you go to market? And do you think e-commerce for a company like yours, is it a threat in terms of small brands can get attention or do you think it's a real opportunity for a company of Nestle scale to use the tools of personalization at scale to win in this transformation of digitalization? Yeah, look, going forward, I would absolutely argue this is an opportunity because we are engaging in this now uh, with a vengeance and uh, we're really giving it a lot of effort. And I think this is where some of the scale and scope really does pay off because once you have a solution that works in one category, you can easily take some of the building blocks and make it easier for the next category and brand that you want to take more digital. It was a threat mid-decade because you saw when some of the larger consumer goods companies, including Nestle, were losing share to the smaller and mid-sized, more focused companies, digital was a big part of that. So for products where in the old days, these companies would have struggled to get shelf space, 
digital for them was an easy and cheap way to actually get attention in public and then also get on the infinite shelf somewhere with an e-commerce company or actually go to a direct fulfillment model and direct to consumer model and be in business. So I think that was a big part of the story of the past decade and how some of the smaller, more focused companies were taking a share from the larger company. I think Nestle and some of our larger peers have clearly responded to that. And we're certainly giving a lot of effort and we see ourselves sort of in the leading pack when it comes to uh, food and beverage. And I think this is something that we can turn into an opportunity. When it comes to margins, most of the third-party e-commerce relationships, give and take, it's very similar to traditional retail relationships when it comes to the margin structure. I mean, you have some special requirements, especially around the packaging needs so that things can be stacked and shipped in easier ways. But you also have differentiation opportunities in that you make the product slightly different from what is sold on a retail shelf, the physical shelf. And on direct-to-consumer models, you can't really say that the margin structure is better or worse than traditional retail per se. It is worse for the first few units you sell because you have your fixed cost for establishing the direct-to-consumer setup and all the customer acquisition costs initially. Once you're beyond break-even, these models respond super favorably to additional volume. And so then there's no looking back. And in fact, the incremental margin structure then is very favorable. And we've seen this early on with a business like Nespresso, where, of course, we're way beyond that point and enjoying it tremendously. But we also saw it with the growth of uh, Tails.com or Freshly in the U.S., uh, where we acquired the outstanding shares last year. So once you get over that hump of covering your fixed costs, these business models can be super attractive. And maybe as a last question, Mark, is how tough has it been in the last 12 to 18 months. You know, you've had some of the strongest growth rates you've had in many years in a period that you're operating globally in factories where you've had countries shut down, you're having to operate factories safely, you've got complex supply chains, you've now got commodity prices moving. So it must be a great privilege to be at a company like Nestle that has had accelerating volumes, yet has probably had one of the most complex environments to actually operate a business that anybody's seen in 20 years? Yeah, look, I think you hit it on the head. This was a super demanding environment. We are blessed in the sense that with food and beverage, you're providing an essential range of products. And hence, in most countries, in most circumstances, we were allowed to continue to operate and had a very important role to play. Some of the businesses that simply had to stop, of course, were in much more difficult circumstances. But even with that situation, just simply securing supply chain and also assuring the health and safety of everyone here among our colleagues doing the business and navigating this environment where we all had to shift to remote work styles within a few weeks and then had to make the best of very rapidly changing supply chain situations in order to maintain business continuity, yes, it was a very demanding time. And of course, all of that at a time when each and every one of us personally was also fearing for their health and safety and for their family's health and safety. So it took a strain on all of us. I think when it comes to the complexity, I tip my hat to the Nestle organization, the Nestle people. I think this is where this more decentralized model and decentralized decision-taking really did pay off. So when we navigated through this, we were 
basically outlining some of the key priorities and uh, important areas to watch. But then we gave lots of leeway to the local management teams to actually implement as they saw best fit under the local circumstance. And I think that has worked out beautifully. It would not have been possible to do this by remote control here from Switzerland in 187 markets around the world. So I think this is where the Nestle team, the Nestle cultures and values really rose to the challenge. And I'm immensely grateful for that. And maybe just one final question here, because a lot of people are having this question around inflation. And of course, you're seeing some pressure on some commodities and parts of your supply chain in transportation and energy and resin costs and other areas that you're facing into. How concerned are you? You've seen a lot of cycles in your life. Do you see this as a sort of supply chain bottleneck scenario just because of the complexity here? Or are you more concerned that we've got some real inflation? So is it sort of more transitory that will settle down as the supply chains even out? Or do you think there's something fundamental or is it just too early to tell at the moment? I think too early to tell sums it up really well. You're having a situation now where emerging from COVID and some of the supply chain bottlenecks that have come up over the last 12 to 18 months are creating some of that spiking. And it's important, I mean, of course, to fully reflect that and uh, to address it. And to me, it's not only a 21 spike. Some of these things will clearly now leave their marks on 22 as well. But beyond that, whether they're really starting then a new, more inflationary permanent cycle, so whether they find their way into wage and salary expectations on a continuous basis, and then through that continue to drive an inflationary cycle, that's something where honestly the verdict is still out. And so for the moment, yes, for 21-22, we're seeing some of that spiking. And I think everyone in the industry has been making reference to this. Beyond that, I mean, we're watching keenly and with interest, but we don't know. This is the moment that you need to manage carefully because, as you can imagine, you have a bit of forward cover on some of the commodities where you apply hedging, but in some areas you don't. So take transportation, of course, which has been going up quite uh, significantly, or some of the packaging material that's also an area that's nearly impossible to hedge in. And then when it comes to price increases to our retail partners and the consumers, they are typically, as a result of the contracts, there's some time lag involved. And so that's why this period now takes some very careful managing to avoid damage to the bottom line. Once you actually settle into a regular inflationary pattern, I often get the question like, you know, is inflation good or bad for you? And um, I think inflation in the 2 to 3% regular range, as we've seen quite often in the 80s and 90s, is not a problem. In fact, once you have that pattern, you can take it into account and you can adjust to it. It's the turning points, like the ones we're seeing now, that really require our full attention. And that's what we do. Well, thank you very much, Mark. You know, it's been a real pleasure. I'm sure our listeners have got a lot out of this. And, you know, we've been very long-term investors at Nestle. And just from us, we'd like to thank you and the whole Nestle team for everything you've done over many years, but particularly in the last 12 months, it's been remarkable. And I know sacrifices that people have made. It's easy to be an investor, but it's much harder to be at the front end of operating one of these global businesses. So on behalf of all our underlying investors, thank you. Thank you very much.
Hamish, thank you. It's been a delight to uh, discuss this. And as you can imagine, in a turbulent time like this, we also appreciate long-term investors and the people that take the long-term view and have the faith that uh, we handle the challenges that are short-term in nature fine and then don't lose sight of where we want to go long-term. Someone once asked me, Mark, they said, would you sell your investment in Nestle? And I view Nestle as just truly one of the great companies of the world is incredibly consistent and diversified and very high quality management. And I said to sell Nestle would be like giving away one of my children. We're hearing that with pleasure. Thanks so much. (laughs) Thank you, Mark. That was Hamish Douglas, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Magellan, talking to Nestle CEO Mark Schneider. We trust you've enjoyed this episode of Magellan In The Know. Join us in a month's time for the next episode. For more information on upcoming episodes, visit magellangroup.com.au slash podcast, where you can also sign up to receive our regular Investment Insights program. Thanks for listening. 